that happened. And I was in an art class and I was really grateful that I had that art class to express kind of what was going on. And then that's where I realized, and I, I kind of, I switched my major. And so art really helped me with that healing. And then I, I wanted to help that with youth too. Welcome to Bridging the Potential, intergenerational conversations that change the world. This is Cassandra Funmaker, founding member of Living the Potential Network's Youth Advisory Council, with a question for you. What happens when you bridge the experience, education, and expertise of an elder with the curiosity, energy, and innate wisdom of a youth? It's simple. Everyone grows and the world changes for the better. One conversation, one connection, one collaboration at a time. Today's podcast is no different. Renee Beth connected me with Elizabeth Digby Britton, who is a personal mentor of mine. She is an artist, educator, mother, who helped me overcome many challenges in school and life over the years. I think you will enjoy our conversation about indigeneity and education. My favorite part of this podcast was when Elizabeth shared some of her insight and some resources for any Native student who is struggling through the education system. Hello, this is Renee Beth Poindexter, founder of Living the Potential Network and your host today. As I wrote the book, Living the Potential, Engaging the Wisdom of Our Youth to Save the World, I set out to find ways to create spaces where people could hear what the youth have to say. And this is what this podcast is all about. I love these conversations because after listening to the youth's dreams and concerns, we connect them with a mentor or an elder who has experience and wisdom to share and who is open to learning and receiving from the innovative spirit of the youth. It's reciprocal learning at its best. I always leave these conversations inspired and I think you will too. <clears throat> today I have two special guests. Our mentor today is Elizabeth Digby Britton and our youth today is Cassandra Funmaker. The first thing I'd like to say about Elizabeth Digby Britton is that she's been an educator for over 20 years. She started as an art teacher, um, but she works with people from the ages of, you know, as young as two all the way to adults. And she's got a wide range of experience working with families, working with schools, basically understanding the whole point of community and learning and how to bring who you are to what you do. So Elizabeth, I'm going to have you start first. Tell us a little bit about you and your background and then we'll go to Cassie and get a little bit about her background and uh, we'll see what magic we can bring together in this conversation today. So welcome, Elizabeth Digby Britton. Bonjour. Um, so yes, my name is Elizabeth. I am Lakuteri Ojibwe and I am Bear Clan. I am also German and a mixture of some other fun ethnicities in there too. Um, I have been married for 20 years and I am the mother of two children and the um, I say I adopt a lot of other kids that I work with. So I have many children out there that I've, I've worked with. Um, but my oldest child is 17 and a junior in high school. And then my younger child is a seventh grader in middle school. Um, I currently live in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is a small-ish town city. I mean, we've got some great things here, but it's, you know, feels kind of small sometimes. 
Um, I went to UW-Lacrosse and got my bachelor's in art education. And then I also got a master's from there in education as well in professional development. Um, I come from a family of four. I have two older sisters um, who have a different mom. We have the same dad. Um, they're Oneida and Ojibwe. And then I have a younger brother that we have the same parents. Um, and I grew up for the most part in Galesville, Wisconsin. I was a military child, so I kind of lived all over the U.S. So when we moved to Galesville, Wisconsin, it was very different because <laughs> I'd been on military bases, which were very diverse. And now we've moved, we moved to this tiny little town where there was very little diversity. And with that, um, families didn't look like my family in that town, um, especially because I had half sisters and a lot of families did not have a blended family. Um, plus my sisters were a lot darker than, um, their classmates. Um, my brother and I have the white passing privilege and their experience was very different in school. Um, where, where we went to school, we were called the Redmen. So we were the GET Redmen. So using a native American mascot. And what that taught me as a student was that I didn't look like that stereotype. Therefore I must not be native enough. And so that impacted my identity for a long time. I never thought I was native enough to say I was native. Um, and so getting through school there and then um, it was hard for my siblings. I was telling Cassie this earlier that I have siblings that did not graduate traditionally from high school. So my kids, when I advocate, I have to share with schools that they are one generation away from high school dropouts. Um, my dad, my aunt, and my uncle all dropped out of high school at 16. Um, and so, and then my dad, he, um, his girlfriend, which became his first wife, was pregnant. And again, families didn't really look that like that in the white rural community that I lived in. I went off to college and I learned, um, you know, I, I started really coming more into my identity and being like, I am Native, you know, this is part of who I am. But again, not really sure if I could say that because I'm not enrolled. Um, my dad is enrolled. Uh, graduated from college and I started teaching in this tiny, tiny little town of Barocco, Wisconsin, and um, happened to have a, a person walk into my room one day and he knew like my whole family, like he knew my family story. He knew where I graduated from um, and he was Ojibwe as well. And he helped me learn that um, you don't have to be enrolled to be able to claim your identity, like to, to, you know, embrace that. And that really helped me on my path of understanding. Um, but I really look at what school kind of had done with stereotypes and, and that impact that that did have on my self-esteem and identity. Um, and so then I had taught high school for a few years. Um, we ended up moving to lacrosse and kind of worked a few jobs so that I could be home more for my child. Um, and then eventually got a job at the lacrosse youth and learning center where I was working for the Ho-Chunk Nation and I was a home school coordinator, but it wasn't that people were being homeschooled. It was a home to school liaison. So we were that advocate between kind of the, the home and the school. So like if the schools reached out to families and they didn't respond back, the school would sometimes contact us to reach out to the families. And that's due to the historical and intergenerational trauma that has happened because of residential schools for indigenous people. There's a lot of distrust for the school system. Um, and so when school calls, they just didn't really wanna call back um, either due to their own immediate experiences in school or due to family, you know, too. So 
that was mainly my job was to help do that and then provide training for staff and other organizations and then work one-on-one with youth, um, especially we did an after-school program where we would help with homework and different things. Um, and that's how I got to know lovely Cassie. Um, and so it, it's through that work that, um, well, and even all throughout, I think you talked about how youth are our teachers too. And I've always said that I learn just as much from the youth I work with than they learn from me. And I can even think of a few um, students at the Lacrosse Youth and Learning Center. I had one student in particular who taught me so much about Ojibwe culture. Um, even though, you know, we were there and it was through the Ho-Chunk Nation, we would have students that would be from multiple native nations. And um, I just always think to this day of how great that was that he would teach me different aspects because I wasn't raised traditionally um, in Ojibwe culture. So um, I was always grateful for students that would lead me. And right. I, yeah. I was just going to say, um, we've said so much there that's probably <laughs> so relevant to so many people about your life journey and um, really owning your identity and, um, and discovering your esteem and really having clarity about that. Um, what sounded like it was it, because of the family and the blended family, um, there was some resistance to you really owning who you were in some level, but you are able to own it when you got to college. You know, so how many years would you say you were struggling with that idea of, you know, who am I? Who is my family? How do we, you know, like the way you describe it, we're in these military places where there was a lot of diversity and then you're suddenly in a small town where everybody looks the same, except your family looks different. And then how, how old were you when that happened? And, you know, these ideas of identity and self-esteem, it's like, those are really insignificant topics. Could you go back and cover a little bit of that? We moved to Wisconsin when I was in first grade. Um, So I was pretty young during that move, but because again, my experience with my other, the other students that I went to school with, like I said, they were, it was very diverse on the military base in Pennsylvania. Um, And so I I could never understand my classmates and their racism. Like I just didn't get it. I never could figure that out. Like, why do you just hate people because of the color of their skin? Like it, it was just something that I, that was really hard. And then, um, my own identity, I don't know, like how young, like, you know, I always knew I was Ojibwe. It wasn't something that was ever hidden. Um, but again, that being able to like own that, I I think I just listened to society and the stereotypes more. And I don't know that my dad ever really had a direct conversation either because my grandpa moved off of our reservation. Um, after world war II, he lived up um, near a reservation and he moved away from there after world war two. And so then like my dad and his siblings were not raised with that really strong cultural connection. Um, and so they just kind of lived their life. And so again, it wasn't that you didn't talk about necessarily being native, but it just wasn't like really embedded in the stuff we did. I mean, I can now see like bits and pieces that weren't directly like taught, but just were part of that. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I don't know that I really thought a whole lot until maybe high school a little bit, just knowing that, you know, I am more than white, but you know that, but for us too, at that time, this gets into the great fishing wars in Wisconsin and, um, yeah, whole nother long story. Um, the fishing wars in Wisconsin were where, um, in the 1960s, Fred and Mike Tribble from LCO. So from my reservation, 
had read um, the treaty and realized we still maintain the right to hunt and fish off the reservations. Um, it's called a usufructuary right. And it was like the Treaty of La Pointe and then as a White Pine Treaty, which is where that was documented. And they went off and they tested that. They got arrested. It fought, went through our court system. Finally, the federal courts had to uphold our treaties. Um, and that's where then as Ojibwe people, we left our reservations to hunt and fish. Because and, and then that's where a lot of the white people surrounding the reservations were shooting at them. There were a lot of racial slurs, a lot of hate. And, and this went on for a while until finally our state realized they needed to pass Act 31, which is where they're supposed to teach about indigenous tribes here in Wisconsin or the indigenous, indigenous nations once in fourth grade, eighth grade, and one more time in high school. But that's when I was in high school is when the fishing wars were happening and that hate was happening in Wisconsin. And so kind of in high school, I, I don't know that I really shrunk my identity, but it certainly wasn't like I probably didn't say as much as I did when I was in elementary school. I just kind of, because you still had that fear a little bit. And so I just kind of kept a little quiet. And I think that all also impacted is the, the hate that was happening in our state. Um, and then again, the mascot really, really impacted because um, I didn't look like that. And so I must not be that. And so I, it wasn't until like college with doing some of my art and expressing identity that it came out more. And then, um, like I said, when I started teaching um, we had gone to one thing at the state level where it was starting to teach about Act 31. And then my friend Matt showed up one day in my classroom. Um, and so that totally changed my life. Right. So. That, well, I think your choice of um, what to study when you went to college, you know, of choosing to become a teacher and focusing on art, you know, was there, um, was, was that an inner wisdom that came through you that will allow you to maybe tell the story that needs to be told that only an artist can reveal? It could, yeah. Um, I, I knew I always wanted to teach. It was whether, when I originally went to college, I was going to either do English or history. Um, I don't know if Cassie's shocked by that thought. Um, no, maybe not. <laughs> and it just ended up kind of on the path to art. And then I had, um, while I was in college, one of my cousins died by suicide, again, on the indige indigenous side, so on the Ojibwe side. And, um, you know, we, we can share that indigenous youth have the highest suicide rate out of any ethnic group. Um, and that happened. And I was in an art class and I was really grateful that I had that art class to express kind of what was going on. And then that's where I realized, and I, I kind of, I switched my major um, and realized that art helped me deal with that. And then my parents divorced too, and like all this fun stuff. Um, and so art really helped me with that healing. And then I, I wanted to help that with youth too. Like that was something I would do right. was, um, help students kind of use art to process and heal. Right. So a lot of your journey is like, okay, your own personal healing, owning your identity and the process of what that is, but a huge respect for indigenous wisdom and how that needs to be seen and heard perhaps in ways that it hasn't been. I mean, it's a travesty when I had no idea that indigenous youth has the highest um, suicide rate. Um, and there's so much wisdom, you know, that needs to be shared, cross-pollinated to other aspects of our society. Um, and I know you've been doing that and the work that you do with parents, the work that you do with schools, the work, I think even how you originally met Cassie, which we'll be talking about in a minute, but you've organized your time to be kind of a healer type teacher, it sounds like, in working with youth. Um, 
you know, those choices of what you do with your time, you know, could you share a little bit because you said earlier and when we started that you have two of your own children, but you have many children in your life. So share a little bit about how you've been able to impact youth. Oh, that, that gets into that whole, like, I have to talk more about, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that I'd like to think that I make a huge impact on youth. Like I, I just try and be, I know Cassie's going to yell at me. She's yelling at me. Good thing. She's muted. Um, but I, you know, I do, I guess I'll own that piece. And it, I have students, even from when I taught high school that come back and talk about how my classroom, and then I had, there was a history teacher I taught with that our rooms were their safe spaces. And I truly felt that and feel that like, um, and then I always say, I love all the children I work with. Sometimes you have some that you have to love more because <laughs> they might be a little more challenging or, or just need some healing themselves. Um, and then there are just some youth that you work with and you're just, you just know, like you just really click and you know, Kathy's one. <laughs> I have a few other kids too, that I've adopted from the center when I worked there that I just say they're mine. Um, I even had parents that have agreed that they are, they, I have co- I have custody. We have joint custody. Um, most of them are adults now, so we're good. I don't have to pay child support. <laughs> totally, totally kidding. Uh, so, you know, but you do learn from the youth you're working with. And I think together, like there are so many lessons um, about just life and, you know, yeah, that's really, well, I think we can get into, because we refer to the center. Um, you're talking about the lacrosse youth and learning center that's part of the yes. Ho-Chunk tribe is that right well yeah. the, the Ho-Chunk nation runs the space we worked under the title six grant for indigenous youth so that's where as long as you had either a grandparent a parent or they themselves were an enrolled tribal member they could come to the to the center so it was Ho-Chunk predominantly in staff and like language would be Ho-Chunk language but you would have youth that could be from other native nations, which is why my kids were able to go is because we're not Ho-Chunk, we're Lakuteray. Yeah. That's and perfect. so they would be able to attend. Yeah. So it sounds like that center uh, represented a place that if you would have had that, you know, growing up, it would have made a huge difference. But as it turns out, you know, a lot of times we go through difficult times so that we can discover our gifts and that we can find a way to contribute moving forward to those who hopefully don't have to pay the same price. Which uh, brings me to Cassie. Um, I'd love to just give a brief, you know, intro who Cassie Fundmaker is. She's an activist, creative environmentalist, and a humanitarian, and she really loves to help people from all walks of life. She's a current high school senior, um, and going to continue her education with Columbia College, Chicago, and Columbia College in Chicago, studying film, television, and direction. So Cassie, I'm so excited to have you with us today. Could you share a little bit of your story and then we'll go into your um, conversation with your questions with Elizabeth. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I would say that a lot of my story of like who I am, like education wise and just like human wise, uh, a lot of it has to do with Elizabeth and her work. Um, I grew up going to the Ho-Chunk Youth and Learning Center myself. And there I learned a lot about my culture that I otherwise wouldn't have learned. And a lot about uh, just struggles that a lot of people of my demographic go through and knowing that I'm not alone. And that was so therapeutic and so magical to me. And um, I 
carried these uh, beliefs and these uh, learnings that I took, uh, that I had uh, through middle school. And I had a project-based education in middle school. And it was also so amazing and so magical to be able to, you know, do my own thing and express myself artistically through projects. And then high school happened. Um, I had to go to, uh, I guess, normal high school, public school, and it was a challenge. And um, I had resources from the Ho-Chunk Youth and Learning Center that helped me, but there was a point in time where I was on the verge of dropping out. And it wasn't until I reached out a little bit and I had Elizabeth, um, come and assist me and have weekly meetings with me and all my teachers and really get my feet on the ground. And for that, I will be forever thankful. So yeah, that's kind of where I am now, just about to graduate high school. Wow, I wouldn't have thought that would happen. But yeah, that's where I am. That's great. That's a wonderful story. I can see um, looking and helping um, and looking for help. Yeah, you know, it's challenging when you're a directed learner, self-directed learner, used to doing your own projects and uh, suddenly having, you know, different schools have different models, but let's just say uh, sitting in rows asking for permission, you know, to be creative. It's not my thing. It's It's really not. (laughs) There was a little part of you that's going, wait a second, do I have to give up me to to learn, you know? Mm -hmm. So lucky you that you had uh, Elizabeth as a mentor at an early age. So um, let's get started. What, um, I'm just curious, um, what kind of questions would you like to um, start with to stimulate our conversation today with Elizabeth? Yeah, definitely. So right off the bat, I'm going to ask a very simple but loaded question. So what do you think does it mean to be an Indigenous person going through the education system? Ooh, that's, you're calling that a simple question. Could I just say <laughs> it's that? Loaded. It's loaded. It's loaded. I know. It's loaded. Um, Truly to go through our our education system as an Indigenous person is to be seen as invisible, basically, because you are not included. Um, If we are included, it's part of like the backdrop. Um, You know, when when our history book starts in the United States history and we get one chapter of glacier formation and the Indigenous tribes and then boom, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Um, you know, so, so we get totally put in the backdrop and ignored. Um, and, and I think then we as indigenous people, because we're not seen, um, except maybe as the mascot, right? Like that's (laughs) the only time we get really acknowledged. And so, because we don't see that true history or get to read from indigenous authors or see indigenous artists, you know, you're just kind of assumed that you don't exist anymore either. Um, so you're invisible and you no longer exist because you disappeared after 1492. So that has a huge impact on youth and um, going forward. And that's been one of my biggest things with our school system is if you want kids to be engaged, if you want Indigenous kids to be engaged, you need to include them in what you're teaching. You can't teach your history starting at 1492. You can't use land bridge theory because that is just a theory. It has been proven actually not to be true, um, but teachers still teach that as as truth and fact. Um, And so you've got to adjust that so that our kids aren't invisible. So, yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you're just speaking facts here. Um, yeah. So uh, speaking of facts, I have some statistics that I uh, found. Um, okay, so 65% of Native students graduate high school compared to the national average of 75.2%. So that's about 10% less. And then on top of that, with college graduation with an associate's degree, um, it's much lower. 9.3% of Indigenous people have an associate's degree compared to the national average of 20.3%. So when I read these statistics to you, do they surprise you at all? No, because I usually share those statistics when I go out and present. So I'm well aware of our, our data and the statistics with that. So mm-hmm. not surprised. No. Yeah. And then do you have any ideas as to how the average person like you or me could change this and in any way, fix it a little bit? So it, it gets super complicated, right? When we, when we start looking at that of how, how do we impact that piece. And so one of the things that I spent time doing was trying to just teach about historical and intergenerational trauma, like making sure that our schools understood residential school and that impact that it had on our youth and our families. Um, But we also then as communities have to have those same conversations about why, why is that the case? Why are we not making sure that kids finish high school? what was our own trauma that we've endured and how do we not pass that on to our kids? And, and then really having that, those tough discussions amongst ourselves too. Um, that is one of the biggest things that we need to do. And, um, you know, I've talked about how like you need to heal the home um, and, and you need to heal there so that we can create strong students to send out into our schools. Um, you know, th- yeah, there's just so much work with that. And, but that is a start is just trying mm-hmm. to heal and understand that piece. I think also as a community, as indigenous people, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, just cause you have a piece of paper with a degree on it doesn't mean you're smart. Have you ever heard anyone mm-hmm. say that? Right. Mm-hmm. I, I would hear that all the time. Um, just cause you have a degree doesn't mean you're smart or why are you talking like that? Cause if we sound, you know, use the vocabulary that we've learned, we get accused of sounding white or uppity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's very hard when, if you as a parent want your kid to go on and go on to college, you have to be careful what you're saying at home with that message. And so, and then the people around, if they're talking like that to your kid, it's going to truly impact them getting their high school diploma, them getting their college degree. So, right. Yeah, for sure. Um, And then I think you kind of already answered this question, but do you think there are historical implications to these numbers? Yep. We, I kind of mentioned the historical and intergenerational trauma, but also there's a piece too about leaving family. Like, I I think that's super hard because if you have a big indigenous family and typically, you know, you do when you start looking at our family trees don't look like a European family tree. So there's a bigger you know, sense of family and even family responsibility. And I think that also impacts kids being, being able to go off and away from home um, because they're so used to having all that around them. And so that's, that's a part of it too. Mm -hmm, Definitely. 
Um, okay, so switching subjects a little bit, I personally subscribe to the belief that anybody could be an educator, no matter age, no matter degree, anything like that. And I kind of learned a lot of that from you. Uh, you are an educator, you have a degree, but like you taught me things that typical art teachers wouldn't have taught me. Um, and I was just wondering for any other Native students who may be struggling to graduate or just struggling through the educational system in general, who do not have the same resources that I had, who don't have a lovely mentor like you, uh, what advice or websites or resources would you direct them to? Okay, gosh, there, there's so much to that. And I got to figure out how. I know, how I know, I know. I <laughs> like, um, so anybody can be an educator. Absolutely. Like there, there is so much we can learn from each other and just having conversations, right? Just that support. Um, Cassie, you've taught me so much too, just in how you look at the world um, and just different pieces of what you're passionate about. Um, you know, I, our conversations were always so much fun. I don't know how much homework we actually got done. I hope your mom's <laughs> not watching this. Sorry, Tanya. Um, we, we did get homework done, but you know, yeah. we spent a lot of time talking and I think sometimes that's what you really needed to was a person to just chat with. And I think if people are struggling right now, zoom has taught us and our pandemic that maybe we do feel isolated. We need to get back to normal. Right. But we've also learned how to connect in ways we didn't weren't doing before. I'm seeing a lot more support groups on Zoom, you know. So like when we get out of this pandemic, um, people might be able to find indigenous groups that they can connect with, especially as urban Indians, right? As urban indigenous people, we are so separated from our tribes and our nations. And so hopefully we'll be able to connect more that way. So that, that would be one thing I would suggest for youth looking is to find groups. And I know I'm the old group that really loves our Facebook. Um, I think there's probably still platforms on Instagram and stuff too, but I know on Facebook, I have like, there's an indigenous moms group that I love reading. And once in a while, I'll just chime in for some of the younger moms of just things, you know, to think about when they're trying to do bedtime routines or, you know, they're you know, just different stuff that they're doing. And so I, I think there's a lot out there that wasn't there when I was younger. And I can't imagine like, how could that have changed my life? You know, yeah, it's, I'm sure it would have, but, um, and then websites, every nation has a website. So if you're able to go onto your tribal websites, there are supports, there are newsletters, there are different things that are listed that you might be able to connect with and find so that you have that sense of culture um, or that, that, support in your identity so did I answer all that I think you did wow I think you did can I add something there um Cassie um you know I have tribal roots myself and um coming from Ohio area um Cherokee and my in-laws are Chippewa and you know it's kind of interesting to later in life really understand what indigenous um, leaders could have shared that would have impacted, you know, the biggest crises impacting our world today is climate disruption, climate Mm -hmm. disruption. And yet indigenous, you know, leaders always had a relationship with the earth and the land and where our food comes from and all of that. It's pretty interesting. So I had the great fortune of meeting a group of um, amazing people, you know, indigenous leaders. And it started with, excuse me, a gentleman 
that um, is called, his name is Illyrian Mikirlioff, and he um, is from Alaska and part of the Aleutian Islands. And he wrote a book called The Wisdom Keepers. So through that connection with him um, and a couple other people, there's an organization called Pull Together Now, pulltogethernow.com. And it is an organization that supports these different tribal leaders throughout North America to come together and share their wisdom about how do we get out of this uh, climate disruption challenge and what is the wisdom that needs to be shared. So uh, we actually put together a documentary based on a two-day event that we did in Portland on climate. And I got to, you know, it was a talking circle and we observed and then looked at the videos and then map the videos related to the themes or the five steps of things that we need to recover from and become more conscious of what our native leaders have to teach us about that. And one of them is, you know, the impact of colonization and separation and all of that has created the rest of the story that keeps us not in relationship with ourselves and each other and the earth. So I, that's my feeling. It's like there's so much wisdom that's in these cultures that needs to be shared now more than ever. And pull together now might be a good website for you. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. Agree. I just wanted to share too. So Cassie, also books. That was another thing is books for youth. Like there's so many really good authors, indigenous authors out there. I spend way too much money on buying indigenous books. So if kids are looking or students are looking, I don't know if they'll have a way after this podcast and they hear it of contacting you or connecting with you or me or however, but I would love that there are just some really, really good book resources. But what I wanted to just comment on too, Renee, um, is that colonization, colonizers changed our names of our tribes too. So you said your in-laws are Chippewa, that they're Ojibwe. Um, So the word, the government calls us Chippewa because they couldn't say Ojibwa, but we're Ojibwe. Um, or Anishinaabe, which is the original people. So it's, it, it was the colonizer, like the, the government couldn't say our names. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about Ho-Chunk and how, like what the government recognized Ho-Chunks as. Do you, or do you want me to say it? Do you? I mean, yeah, we, we're the Winnebago tribe, but yeah. they call us Ho-Chunk. Well, no, I mean, th- they called you Winnebago, you're Ho-Chunk. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I oh my God, can we, can we cut that part out? That was so embarrassing. Okay, yeah, we... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you, you, yeah. The government called you Winnebago. You are Ho-Chunk. So yeah. Um, yeah. But they did that to so many. Cause you can look at the, the Sioux. The Sioux is not the word for them themselves. They're the Lakota, Nakota, Dakota. Um, you know, and there are other ones too, which now I won't think of all of them. Um, you know, like they talk about the Iroquois Confederacy. That is not a thing. There is no right. Iroquois tribe. That is the Oneida. And they're the Haudenosaunee is what they call themselves. But our, our textbooks get it all wrong. Um, and so that's like one of those important pieces is you need to ask the tribes and the nations, like, what do you want to be called? Not what does the government recognize you as? Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, that Chippewa thing, you know, it took me a long time because my grandpa always said he was Chippewa, like that he would always say that. And it was just like, oh, hold on a second. And then I started digging into how the name came about and like what the name actually is, but realizing that's what the government recognizes us as, but we're Ojibwe. Um, and so it's just, oh, I had no idea. This yeah. Is, it's like, we need a whole translation book yep. about the truth, you know, and yeah. maybe 
Um, there is a book that's been written that I, you might be familiar with that I, it's called The Inconvenient Indian. And um, it's a very cool book that talks about um, how natives are, um, or how Indians are, were, sh were showing up in movies, you know, cause then the movies and the stories about that you see on the big screen, you know, Tonto and, you know, uh, the whole, all of that mystique about it is not really the stories that need to be shared. <laughs> so how do we get the media? I think this is a question and this is part of what uh, Cassie, you're gonna be studying, you know, as, as your interest in um, film and television and writing and, you know, what is the real story and how can the media, um, what are the stories? Are there any movies or examples of people getting it right on these right stories, on the right narratives? Yeah, we have, I mean, there's a lot of examples out there of when it's an indigenous led movie written by indigenous people. Um, they do, they are able to get it right. And what I love what you were talking about with the inconvenient Indian, because there's a really good documentary called real engine. I don't know if Cassie's ever watched it. R E E L and then engine real engine. And you should be able to find it somewhere. What is so fascinating about that is it talks about like indigenous people through film and TV, and it's not very long, maybe an hour, 90 minutes, but the fun, sad fact, maybe not fun fact is that in those old Western movies, indigenous people were played by Italians. <laughs> and so this whole concept of this headband with a feather on it, that's a Hollywood invention. It was done to keep the wigs on the Italian actors. <laughs> So, I mean, now you'll see people that use it, but it, that was not a traditional style headband with a feather, but that became a stereotype thanks to Hollywood and John Wayne movies and, you know, all of that fun stuff. I know, I know, <laughs> um, duh. you know, we could talk about Disney's Pocahontas movie and sexualizing. She was like nine, 10 years old. Um, mm -hmm. She's actually the first documented case of someone being sex trafficked. She had wow. a husband, an indigenous husband and child. And they sold her off and married her off and sent her to Europe. And they claim she died of disease, meaning the Europeans that took her. Um, her tribe really truly believes they killed her um, and that it, it wasn't disease. So that's a whole, whole another like. <laughs> wow. Another yeah. facade built by the media. <laughs> well, Disney couldn't tell that story, right? They yeah. had to make it a love story sexualization of indigenous women you know mm -hmm. that that stuff and I did want to mention too Cassie like because um you had talked we well I'd mentioned about the suicide rate for indigenous youth but also understanding that LGBTQ youth have a very high suicide rate and so their suicide rate might be even higher than indigenous youth mm -hmm. where that we have the highest rate as indigenous youth um ethnicity wise or ethnic wise but the LGBTQ um, plus suicide rate is up there too. So it's just one of those things. I just want to make sure that we mention that as well, because it's important to recognize the trauma and the suicide in multiple groups, but. And to be factual. Yeah. I have a question. Um, it's okay, Cassie, if I ask the, a question. Of like, course. Yeah. I don't want to interrupt your flow here, but there's so many people like the pull together now group that I told you about. And I'm, you know, I have native heritage in me, but it doesn't show, you know, in my face or my look and so forth. But the idea of collaboration, where we come together, pull together to share the wisdom that needs to be shared now. Do you have any advice on how um, we could do a better job of that? Because so many people come in, like they want to give a handout and 
And it's like, wait a second, this is, this is a, you know, there's no weak link here other than the perception of it. And the idea is if we could bring people together to share the wisdom on an equal playing field, that would be the best possible pathway to create something new, you know, for, um, you know, instead of finding common ground is to find the new ground of collaboration for a better world. How might we interact with um, First Nations people? You know, uh, you know, you have any suggestions on that? It gets super tricky. <laughs> um, it, it can be, and I wish we could come about it easier. Um, you know, like we're, we're told we need to go sit with our elders, right? Like if you want to learn, you go sit with your elders. And when you're someone like me, who I, I think I have a, well, I probably have a few cousins up there by the last name Quagan, but I only have one cousin that lives up in LCO that I've ever met that I, you know, so for me to just show up um, and go sit by elders, it, you know, it's just, it's a little harder to just go do that. Um, when you live in like lacrosse on Alaska, getting to, you know, some of the areas where some of the elders are, if they're having, you know, holding lodge and doing different stuff, um, that gets harder too. And so I, I don't know how we're going to continue to teach, you know, and I think the scary thing is during COVID we've lost so many people. Our indigenous communities have been hit so hard with COVID, um, that we've lost wisdom, um, and, and just hoping that people could figure out a way to record um, or, or figure out some ways that we can do some of these things using technology a little more. Um, and, and I think if we can figure out some of that. But the nice thing is we have a prophecy about the seventh generation. You know this, Cassie? Cassie's generation is our seventh generation. And the prophecy has been told that it, it was going to take that many generations. And then it's this group of youth that will come and revive and save everything. Not to put that all on your shoulders. Cassie's like, whoa, <laughs> you got this though. Um, at least in Ojibwe, I, I'm sure, I don't know if the Ho-Chunk, but like that's a more specific like Ojibwe, the lighting of the seventh fire. It's our seventh generation is where, you know, we're really going to see our youth come back. And I, I talk about my own kids because like I said, I wasn't raised traditionally. My kids were able to come to the center and be around in, indigenous people. And I tell them too, like they're not enrolled they know more indigenous knowledge than my dad. They, they have a better solid understanding of what it means to be indigenous and that identity than my dad does. Um, and I see them work in ways that, you know, I am surprised by There are times they correct me if I do something <laughs> right, which maybe I shouldn't say that because you're not supposed to correct your elders, but you know, like, <laughs> like just different things. Sometimes I'll be like, you can't do that. I'm like, Oh, you're right. I can't, you know? Um, so it's just, I, I like that my kids, kind of know more and certainly know more language than I know. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I would just say that there's an organization and it's going to sound weird, but it's called the world, world parliament, the world parliament of religions. And it sounds weird that you think it's, it's an old name. Um, but there's a strong indigenous um, component to that, the world parliament of religions. And I attended a couple of their meetings. Actually, that's where I met uh, Jeff Goebel, where, um, oh. That's another you know, man, a mentor that I've connected um, Cassie to. But this idea is like, where are the indigenous leaders coming together to share with the white people 
new possibilities of coming together um, and listening. And I think part of Living the Potential Network is really about engaging the wisdom of our youth to save the world. So when Cassie um, decided to become a youth advisor and came into the group and she's been welcomed and, and accepted and you know, is showing up as a leader, it's like a first step in so many ways of getting in a diverse group of people who are open to learning from you. And how do you feel, Cassie, about listening that you're the seventh generation? I, I really got chills on that. I know about the, they call it the Hopi prophecy about the seven generations. I don't know, maybe it lives beyond the Hopi, but I just wondered how you feel about that. I mean, I'm, I got chills when, when Elizabeth said that. How did you feel when you heard that? Well, I've never heard that before. Um, I too got chills because I think that I've been really trying to live up to that without really knowing what that is, if that makes sense. Um, I personally, I dedicate a lot of my time to informing a lot of like my colleagues like that are my age about, you know, making radical social change, especially when it comes to indigenous issues. And to hear that it's a prophecy and that that's my job, it's, wow, <laughs> just wow. It makes so much sense. It really does. Um, wow. And I think that it's, I think that that's inspirational. I think that I'm going to continue to do that with a sense of more purpose now. So thank you for sharing that. I really had no idea. Well, and I'm just going to say too, Cassie, because we talked about this, I think, with our first conversation that wasn't recorded, but we're both Bear Clan and mm -hmm. our roles are similar within Ho-Chunk and Ojibwe of being like the peacekeepers, but also the warriors and a mm -hmm. warrior can look different, right? Like I've, I've accepted that it is my job to fight for equality and social justice when it comes to our youth especially in our schools and our community like that, that is just something that I'm like, I'm just supposed to do it. Like, I just, I'm going to speak up. I'm going to do it. And Ella is, you know, my oldest child is my one that really has paved the path because she sees so much in her schooling and then she would bring it to me. And then I'd be like, okay, we need to do something about this. And yes, it's not, you don't have it as bad, but this is something that is going to impact maybe other kids more in different ways. And so she's always been my warrior bringing it to me from the front lines, like she sees it. And, you know, that's been just a phenom phenomenal thing to see a child that is going to fight for social justice, which is why the two of you are friends, really. I yeah, mean, of course. You, you just, you, you're passionate and you believe in the same things. And then my youngest child, who is um, non-binary and two-spirit, I am learning so much more too. Like Ella would always speak up for like gender and if it was um, homophobic and transphobic too, but we're even seeing more as Joe is coming through and creating their path um, to in this world of, of how that is going to look and what that's going to be like. And then also just reconnecting with the indigenous two spirit. Like this is just what we believe and Christianity and colonization changed it in a lot of people's minds, but we've mm -hmm. always believed in, you know, five genders and embracing our two spirit family members that it's, you know, they're living who they are and there's a reason it's a gift. Um, wow, that's a a powerful. That's another, you know, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about Cassie at 17, right? You're 17, 18, Oh, 18, oh, that's right. <clears throat> you know, assimilating and bringing all of who she is to her next step, you know, in her life and discovering her passion, you know, because in the bio that she has on our website, 
<clears throat> she's studying film, television, and direction. And but she's going to take this uh, between May and August of 2020, May 2021 to August 2022. She's taking a gap year in her education to recuperate, travel, and continue her work fighting for social peace. She's currently working on, you know, uh, amplifying femme indigenous voices with her school's Indigenous Peoples Club, and um, this idea of being in film and TV, like this, like a direction coming through. And I'm, as I'm listening to this, it's like, what new stories need to be told? That's exactly to being a seventh generation leader. I'm mm -hmm. just going to throw that out there. It's like, you don't have to have the answer. It's just like some ideas may come and you can play with the question, but is there anything coming to you right now that, you know, Elizabeth that I can hold for you? as a possibility of what you're going to discover through this gap year because you're curious about it. Mm -hmm. what do you well, think? I want to take a lot of time to sort of get in contact with different people across the nation. You know, I'm planning on spending a lot of time in Portland and the West Coast. And so I want to spend that time talking to people and just learning their story and learning what they want to be told and represented and learning what I want to tell and represent and learning what, what I'm able to without crossing any barriers or like, yeah, without crossing any like inappropriate barriers. Because I think that in a lot of, uh, which is very minimal, there's not much indigenous film, but in a lot of it, it's directed by people who aren't indigenous. And a lot of the times it's not their story. And I want to learn how to tell their stories from their perspective rather than mine. So it's a weird, weird situation where I wanna be a director, but I also wanna tell other people's stories as a director. I don't know, I'm figuring it out personally, but. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to do. Um, I have one uh, sort of person that I look up to who is uh, a person of color in film. I, her name is Maya Washington. Um, I met her through Youth Performance Company, actually. And she is such a wonderful, bright soul. And I really, I've seen some of her work. A lot of it is like uh, through um, like channels and like through, through paid stuff. Um, but I really, really appreciate her work. And um, I kind of want to be like her, you know? I want to be a filmmaker who tells stories of people who struggle and people who go through it, you know? Exactly. Well, you know, part of that is your story. <clears throat> so learning in this gap year, bringing you and your story, I hope you're keeping a journal. And uh, I know, and just reflecting, right, Elizabeth? Is there any other, you know, we're getting to the end of our time together and I know we could go on and on and on. <laughs> but let's just say, Elizabeth, when you listen um, <clears throat> to Cassie, fun maker here, um, what are, is there any things that you heard today that actually, um, you know, has affirmed or enlightened you with a new perspective that you didn't have before? As a mentor, learning from the youth, anything show up for you today? A lot. Um, you know, I guess you don't ever realize how much you impact just by what you consider to be just what should be a regular human interaction with people, right? Like, I mean, just everybody should support. And I also didn't realize like how much of an impact that was for you when I did come in. Like, 
I mean, I knew it helped, but I didn't realize you were quite that close to, you know, I don't want to say giving up. Um, and I wouldn't say that you really d- struggled a whole lot, like up to that point, because you were getting really good grades. I think you're selling yourself a little short on that. Like <laughs> you, you were getting really good grades and you were working really hard. You, Cassie is also was involved in a lot of stuff too, when it came to school activities and just that piece too. So, um, you know, not realizing how much of a difference those, what should be kind, basic human interactions made for Cassie, um, I've always recognized that Cassie is phenomenal and amazing. And she knows that she knows that she knows. I just absolutely love her. Um, I'm always very excited when I run into her, like when we would see each other at, so, you know, at the middle school or when you would either be there yourself or um, supporting your younger sibling as well, you know, just, just, it's, she's like sunshine. So um, she knows that. Um, I think your mom always would shake her head at us because we could have 10 conversations at once about so many different fandoms that, you know, your, your mom sometimes would just walk away. But um, yeah, I just, I look forward to seeing what Cassie's going to do because she's going to do great things. She just does. I know she is. Yeah. I've had zero doubt. Yeah. yeah. Well, Cassie, you know, and isn't it great to hear that, you know, from a mentor that knows you maybe, you know, even better than you know yourself. But I'm just curious, what did you hear today? Um, what are some takeaways that have, have affirmed, enlightened, or empowered you, Cassie? Yeah, well, just the reassurance that, you know, small, basic, kind human interactions are life-changing. That is so important. And the fact, I don't know, just the idea of the seven generations thing, like I said, no clue. And it makes a lot of sense for me personally. It makes a lot of sense. And I would just like to encourage anybody who is listening at any point to really look into how Indigenous people are treated in the school system and how you can help because anybody can help. It doesn't matter your background or your ethnicity. Just educating yourself a little bit helps and it goes a long way when it comes to ultimately fixing our educational system uh, and how we treat Indigenous people and how Indigenous people are to rise up. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, I am really touched, moved, and inspired by this conversation. And, you know, one of the things I'm taking away is I had no idea that through the colonization, the language of even the names of the tribes have changed. I did not know that. I did not know, you know, I always looked to the Iroquois Confederacy as a huge, you know, part of the story is the impact with Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence and all of it. But what's the, what's the real truth about what was the Iroquois Confederacy? All of a sudden, I'm hungry to look at the history, you know, of really where did the language change? And, you know, how do we get back to telling the truth about our own heritage as a species in, this, in North America? I mean, I know when they changed the Columbus Day to Indigenous People's Day was a good thing, but there's so much more behind that, and I'm hungry to learn more about it. You know, a lot of people study history for facts and chronological things, but when you're really in a search for what, what, why did that happen? So you've inspired me, um, Elizabeth, to really look at that. And then the idea of looking at that film, Real, R-E-E-L, Engine, 
um, and looking for other films that are um, and media that is is directed by indigenous leaders. I want to be more paying more attention to the stories that are coming forward. And I would say, you know, what I'm impressed with with you, Kathy, is your ability to um, recognize uh, that you deserve a gap year and that you're deciding that you want to go and speak and listen to people and hear their stories. And I encourage you to write your own along the way because allow yourself to, you know, your, I believe in the model of, and I think this is probably indigenous too, is that we're born with a calling, that you have a soul purpose. And our job is really to figure out what that is and how to bring it forward and align with other people intergenerationally, you know, um, different age groups, but also really bringing forward this indigenous wisdom in a way that maybe you're the translator. Maybe you're part of connecting the real story using media tools to make it happen. So I'm really grateful that you two came together today and there's so much richness here. And uh, today we've been listening to Elizabeth Digby Britton, um, the mentor speaking with Cassie Cassandra Funmaker. And it was jam packed. I'll tell you, I don't know about you, but I'm leaving this conversation today, looking forward to the next conversation. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. And before we tune out, I think it would be important to have Elizabeth Digby Britton share how people can locate her for additional information. Can I just add one more history fact to sure. Thomas Jefferson? Because so when they looked at and they call it the Iroquois Confederacy, but it's the Haudenosaunee is the, the name that should be used. But with that, when Thomas Jefferson and when they wrote the Declaration of Independence um, and wanted leaders, it was only white male leaders. If you go back to the Haudenosaunee and like the Oneida, especially, it is a matriarchal society. Women are the leaders and they're women of color. <laughs> so our government did the exact opposite of what they were modeling on. Um, and so I, with the representation of people or, and wanting to elect people. So I just always find that that irony of what would our world look like differently had we allowed women and people of color to represent? Like, would we be different? Like that climate change thing. So just throwing that out there because that's just one of those things that I, I history is one of my favorite things. Um, how to connect with me. Um, that is a good, I'm, I'm on Facebook, but I'm kind of private on Facebook. Um, you know, I would be fine. I don't know if you want to give out my email. I, I don't know okay. what contact. Yeah, we'll just say yeah. that Elizabeth, you know, we'll have you be connected to Living the Potential Network and uh, we'll help direct, um, you know, questions to you and perhaps help you have more of a forum for your message because you have a lot to offer in this intergenerational space. So thanks again for tuning in um, to our listeners and uh, we'll, 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 hopefully you'll be listening to our next conversation. Thank you so much.